gonna have to edit this beginning because we need some time to go through here. And once that comes up, boom, 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 boom. All right. So today we are going to be looking at different uh, schools of apologetics. Um, next week we're gonna look at the school that I embrace, which is called classical apologetics, and we'll kind of end with looking a little bit into that. Uh, but we're gonna look at three other schools, uh, and and yeah, we'll we'll talk more about that as we go along. So here's Immanuel Kant. We looked at him last week, um, giving a critique of the classical synthesis. Uh, and so now theologians, as we discussed, have uh, been trying to um, develop a response uh, to approach apologetics without falling into like one of his traps kind of thing. Um, so how do, how do we legitimately make, legitimately make the case for God's existence without yeah, falling into those traps? So I wanted to briefly discuss a worldview, and we're going to look at this um, more at a later time, but I this is important in the realm of uh, apologetics. So for a coherent worldview, you have to have these four basically pillars. I, I like to look at them as pillars. Uh, you need origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Origin, where do we come from? Meaning, why are we here? Uh, morality, what is the difference between good and evil? How, you de how do you determine uh, destiny, what happens to, when we die. Uh, and all of these need to cohere with each other. They all need to be coherent in and of themselves, and they have to be coherent to each other. So if, if you have you know, uh, uh, a philosophy of morality that doesn't cohere to your philosophy of origin, you have an incoherent worldview. These all have to be coherent, and they have to be coherent with each other. Does that make sense? And this is very important. Um, okay, so we're the first... School of apologetics, we're going to, and we briefly looked at this, is uh, fideism, and that's the definition, but basically, um, it, it's, it's where, remember, uh, the, the chasm that uh, um, Kant came up with between the noumenal and the phenomenal world, you don't remember that? And many theologians responding to that just acquiesced, and so what, they're, what they decided to do is basically jump over the ditch, go around the ditch, kind of dig under the ditch, uh, and so... These are the ones who basically say you just have to take a leap of faith. You know, when, they ask, when they're asked why they believe in God, they basically just say you have to take it by faith. And some people will even go to the extent of uh, suggesting that you have to take a leap of faith. Like this just blind leap into the darkness in order to believe in God. There's no reason. It's basically faith versus reason. And, and we'll, we'll get into that. So, and what this conjures up uh, is a memory of uh, James Montgomery Boyce, uh, he died in 2000. I love him, I can hear his voice right now. It's just all raspy and deep, it's fantastic. But he told a story about a mountain climber. All right, so this mountain climber's climbing, you know, he's high up on the mountain and his rope is cut and he's falling. He's, he's fallen to his death and he, and he reaches out and he's able to grab like this little branch that's growing out of the rock, you know, as mountains sometimes do. But it's this flimsy little thing, and he feels it, you know, he's 2,000 feet above the ground, and he feels it kind of relenting. So he looks up to the heavens, and he says, is there anybody up there who can help me? And all of a sudden, a deep voice comes out of the cloud and says, you know, I can help you. Trust me. Let go of the branch and have faith. And so he's looking up at heaven. He looks down at the ground, looks back up at heaven, says, is there anybody else? up there who can help me because that's ultimately the problem that you have with 
with this blind leap of faith. faith. So faith is different than credulity. Credulity is really just believing in something beyond reason. Uh, in fact, I mean, that's where you can, you, you, there are all these uh, philosophies of irrationalism, like uh, we looked at last week, uh, existentialism, uh, relativism, and schools of that sort. So faith does need reason. It's not opposed to reason. They're a little bit different, but we'll, we'll look at that more as we go along. Tertullian, an old uh, uh, theologian of the early 300s, uh, said basically, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? What he's saying, uh, Athens was the capital city of philosophy at that time, and and basically he's saying, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? He even he even said, I believe in Christianity because it's absurd. Now, if he means absurd in the world's point of view, that's one thing. If he means absurd in as in irrational, I mean that's that's a blatant slander against uh, Christ and the work of the Spirit, who is the Spirit of Truth. Um, okay, so that's all we're going to look because we already discussed them. Another school, oh, there he is again. Another school of uh, apologetics is ev uh, evidentialism. And so this is a thesis in epistemology which states that one is justified to believe something if and only if that person has evidence which supports uh, said belief. Evidentialis evidentialism is therefore a thesis about which beliefs are justified and which are not. So the way uh, to reconstruct theism in their point of view is through appeals to history, uh, acknowledging or anything you can empirically verify. But we're going to uh, talk specifically most, mostly about history. But it won't give you an absolute proof of God, but it'll be so convincing uh, that basically uh, what they try to do, here we go, what they try to do, so if we look at, if we think about a court Seeing situation, you know, the prosecution is trying to prove beyond a, uh, a reasonable doubt uh, that, uh, no, I'm, I'm jumping ahead, I'm sorry. Uh, so they appeal to history for a high degree of proper, uh, probability. So arguments from biblical history may not give you formal certainty, such as you would have from uh, logical deduction, but these give, these give you what uh, they call moral uh, um, certainty. So in other words, Remember, we were talking about how no one will have an excuse on that day, right? And so what they're saying is, this isn't going to give you an absolute proof of God, but this is going to be so convincing that basically you have a moral certainty of the existence of God. And so they say that closes that escape hatch, but, uh, but we'll see uh, it doesn't necessarily do that. So some actually you know, use the events of Christ, the historical events of Christ, to argue back. To the existence of God, um, but this leaves a moral escape hatch. You know, those are they argue from history uh, to try to show the evidence from history um, so that it's beyond a reasonable doubt. But it still leaves a moral escape hatch because if you're even if they prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, anybody can just say, "Well, you might say, say it's reasonable, but you haven't given me convincing." an absolute proof of God's existence, so I don't care if it's irrational, I'm not gonna believe it, and that's my excuse. And that's, and that, and that's a fair, that's a fair um, argument. So a guy named uh, Gotthold Lessing came up with, uh, just like Kant, similar to Kant, he said, there's a great, great ditch which divides this world from the world of God. The contingent things of events in history can never yield the proof of, proof of eternal things. And that's right. Uh, I mean, that's right. But he's, he's appealing, again, to what Kant was saying. Um, and so what we 
we, this is what I adopt, classical apologetics, which, again, we're going to start looking into next week uh, and really into the next few weeks. Uh, we'll be looking specifically at that. Uh, but what we argue is that the proof of God's existence is, in fact, conclusive. And it's absolute. It, and that's a bold claim, you know, because if, if you don't prove his, his existence, you know, absolutely, there's some mud on your face. And, you know, you, you know uh, but we'll look at that more as we go along, too. There's Lessing again. A, a third and the last one we're going to look at before we start getting into classical apologetics next week is presuppos presuppositionalism, which is really easy to say. It's an epistemological school of Christian apologetics that examines presuppositions on which worldviews are based and invites comparison and con contrast between the results uh, of those presuppositions. This is the majority report. I mean, it, basically, most apologetics adopt this approach. And there are different varieties uh, of this. There's axiomatic, but I, we're not going to talk about that. The, the one that's, that's mostly used was developed by a man named uh, Cornelius Van Til, uh, who died in 1987. Now, as much as I disagree with uh, him on his school of apologetics and his development of, of apologetics, he was a great and genuine titan of the faith. Okay, so I, I don't want to be smirched this man at all. Uh, I disagree with his apologetic approach. And just so you know, all of these different schools, we pretty much believe this, most of the same things in theology. It's just really a, uh, a difference about how to approach a non-believer in apologetics okay so uh he was um hang on yeah he was a uh, uh, um, a uh, a teacher <laughs> a professor i'm sorry at uh, westminster uh, theological seminary in uh, philadelphia but he was from holland so when he wrote in english it was actually really difficult to understand so his many of his critics and his students differ as to how to interpret him. Um, but regardless, so what he, basically what the presuppos presuppositionalists, man, this is going to be rough, uh, is what basically their argument is to argue for God's existence, you must begin with his existence as your premise. So in other words, unless you start by presupposing the existence of God, you will never get to the conclusion of the existence of God. Now, for any of us who disagree with this school of thought, well, I mean, the most obvious uh, objection to this is this is the, obviously the fallacy of petitio principi uh, or circular reasoning, which basically looks like this. You start with your premise, if A, then B, then you go to B, and then basically you just reverse it, and it's if B, then A. But basically what, what, uh, what um, Van Til was saying is you have to start with God's existence, the premise of God's existence, and work rationally back to uh, the existence of God. Okay, now the way, what he did, because he knew that that was going to be an objection, so his defense was that all reasoning moves in a circular fashion, insofar as its starting point, middle ground, and conclusion are all involved with each other. Now, again, those of us who disagree with this school of thought, notice in that, Another fallacy, which we've discussed, the fallacy of equivocation. Do you remember that? That was when I illustrated the cats had nine tails. You know, and the meaning of the, meaning of the term changes dramatically, uh, not just between beings, but dramatically. It just doesn't mean the same thing as it did before. Because when he's saying 
you know, all, all reasoning moves in a circular fashion insofar as the starting point and uh, middle ground and conclusion are all involved with each other. Well, <laughs> why talk about That's true. You know, and I mean, it, it, you do start with any rational thinking must start with a rational premise. You think in a rational way and you come to a conclusion of a rational sort. But why talk about that as a circular when it's in fact linear? You start with the rational premise, you go and continue in, in, in a rational way of thinking, and you conclude, uh, your conclusion is a, of a ra rational sort, but it is linear. Um, oh, what, sorry, going to the next one. So his defenders argue that what Van Til was getting at was actually something deeper. Uh, and, and what they say is to assume rationality involves necessarily presupposing, uh, to assume rationality actually involves necessarily presupposing the existence of God because without God, there is no foundation for rationality or trusting in the principles of, of epistemology of which we've discussed, like the law of contradiction, the law of causality, the reliability of sense perceptions, the analogical use of uh, language. Now, so if it, and we, we, we grant them that, indeed, if rationality is to be meaningful, and if these principles of epistemology are sound, the ones that we've been discussing, discussing then they scream for the existence of God. But, so what they'll say is, again, we, we, we assume the existence of God already in believing in rationality. But what we think is the classical apologetics is trying to prove that if you want to be rational, you must affirm the existence of God, but we've got to show them that. You, you can't just muddle the waters and just say, you know, everybody, no matter if they're a believer or non-believer, if they're going to be rational, must automatically believe in God. You've got to show them that. That's not already presupposed in most people. Um, in fact, so a lot of people with, with this way of thinking, you know, because they're saying that you've got to uh, start with the presupposition of God in your premise, well, maybe somebody else will just decide to start with the non-existence of God and end up in meaninglessness. So, you know, it, you can't... So here we go. Nobody starts with God except God. Nobody can. In fact, you can't start, so we must start with self-consciousness, and from there, you move to the existence of God. You can't start with my mind, and you definitely can't start with God's mind. The only mind you can start with is your own. And so the first step, in particular, of, of, of uh, proper apologetics and proper rational thinking, especially insofar as uh, seeking out the existence of God, is self-consciousness. Uh, you, you, you recognize there's an idea of yourself and from there you move to the existence of God. Again, human thinking must use their human minds. Um, objections to this. Uh, so some philosophers, some theologians will say, oh, sorry about that. Um, I guess I'll just click over there. All right. Um, uh, that what we're doing is uh, capitulating to pagan ideas of thought. So when one objection would be when you start with a self, that suggests that you're, you're, you're beginning with the autonomy of the self, which we've discussed. And, and that's one of the early objections. But we don't, which is exactly what Adam and Eve did, but we don't start with the autonomy of the self. We start with the, the consciousness of the self. And even Augustine said that with uh, self-consciousness always comes immediately the awareness of uh, truth. In fact, um, 
if you're, uh, as soon as you're aware of yourself as a self, you already know that you're not God. That's what Calvin argued even. Um, yeah, and again, you know, the idea of autonomy where, you, where you're a law unto yourself is not contained in self-consciousness. Uh, yeah, if it were, it would indeed be sinful to start at that point. Uh, but yeah, you can't start in your mind with my thought or God's thought. The only way you can start is self-awareness. And from there, you move. Uh, because you are self, and uh, you'll soon discover that you're not autonomous, which is why we, we say to start with the, the self-consciousness, um, uh, and you'll never end in autonomy if you start actually with self-consciousness. Um, so, next week, we're going to start looking at uh, classical apologetics. This is how apologetics has been since the beginning of the church. And just because Kant came in and muddied the waters a little bit, what we need to do is learn how to respond to him, not reinvent the wheel that's been the true and biblical way. I, I find this to be the true biblical approach. Again, just because we differ in these realms with other uh, Christians doesn't mean they're heretical. Okay, this is, an inter, this is an intramural discussion of other brothers and sisters who, again, believe in Christ, love Jesus, love the Bible, uh, and all of that. We just differ with our approach to apologetics. Um, and this continues. Um, so again, the fear of uh, the presuppositionalists is that we give too much away to the pagan. Um, uh, um, yeah, if we, yeah, yeah. So the fear of the classicists is, is, that they give, uh, is that they give too much away in the giving the pagan excuse for not believing. That, you remember that little escape hatch. Um, and, you know, I, I don't find that reasonable. But because again, you know, the moment the pagan realizes this is circular meaning, so that fallacy makes the argument invalid. Any of those fallacies, the fallacy of circular reasoning, the petitio principi, or uh, the fallacy of equivocation, those both invalidate arguments. There are many, there are many uh, of those that invalidate an argument. Uh, but one thing we all agree on is that the construction regarding uh, the existence of God is certainly the single most important thing to develop uh, a person's view of their life and their worldview. That's why we've had to look at the worldview. I mean, this is the construction of this is essential in developing that uh, for somebody else. And uh, again, as we saw in Romans 1, to leave someone without excuse. Um, and so, are there any questions? <laughs> Are there any questions? All right. Our excerpt for today. Which one did I get? Here we go. It's pretty easy though, right? It's not, it's not too difficult, right? Yeah. All right. All right. Here we go. Let's sit right. Uh, yeah. Thine be the praise. Unto thee be the glory, O fountain of mercies. I became more wretched, and thou didst come near. Thy right hand was ever ready to pluck me out of the mire and to cleanse me, but I did not know it. Nor did anything call me back from a still deeper plunge into carnal pleasure, except the fear of death and of thy future judgment, which, amid all the waverings of my opinions, is before he became a believer, uh, never faded from my breast. And I discussed with my friends the nature of good and evil, maintaining that, in my judgment, Epicurus, who we've talked about, uh, would have carried off this, uh, the palm if I had not believed what Epicurus would not believe, uh, that after death there remains a life for the soul and places of recompense. 
And I demanded of them, suppose we are immortal and live in the enjoyments of perpetual bodily pleasure, and that without any fear of losing it, why then should we not be happy, or why should we search for anything else? I did not know that this was in fact the root of my misery, uh, that I was so fallen and blinded that I could not discern the light of virtue and of beauty which must be embraced for its own sake, which the eye of the flesh cannot see, and only the inner vision can see. Nor did I, alas, consider the reason why I found delight in discussing these very perplexities, shameful as they were with my friends. For I could not be happy without friends, even according to the notions of happiness I had then, and no matter how rich the store of my uh, carnal pleasures might be, yet of a true love I loved my friends for their own sakes, and felt that they, in turn, loved me for my own sake. Okay, so what he said, and we're going to look at, you know, that, that was a brief um, view of his apologetic that's seemingly more disguised there later ones we'll discuss are far more obvious but what he's saying is this is again before his conversion is that you know i there's a poem written by uh, francis thompson who, which i'd love to share with you it's called the hound of heaven and it's basically he's trying to flee away he's running around he's trying to get as far away from god as he can and the hound of heaven tracks him down and that our god truly is that faithful. That's what he's saying, you know, a, a wretched man that it was, the further and further I kept going from you, the more and more you were tracking me down. And from my experience, I can say that is definitely uh, the faithfulness of our God and the grace of the Christ we serve. Any questions? So what is the, I guess, the real name that Jesus, how did, what was yes, the language? Sure. His language was most likely Aramaic. It was probably for him. It was probably a combination of Hebrew and Aramaic. Aramaic just has a little bit of uh, uh, Greek influence in it. Uh, but I mean, he definitely read his Hebrew scriptures, uh, learned them, you know, from his parents in the Hebrew. Uh, but he likely spoke uh, Aramaic. But his name was Yeshua, which is really Joshua. So how did he? What name did he refer to God? Father. I know, but what? The language, father is English. What uh, is yeah, um, golly, what is it? And I don't remember what it is in Hebrew. It's like P three P. I don't remember. It's been a long time. Yetra or something like yeah. No, I'm pretty sure it starts with a P. Father. Yeah, I can't. I, I, I can't. I can't remember actually. I'm just so interested in that. It's like you know, how did they communicate? Because they didn't speak in English. Right. So that would be beautiful to even hear how. They communicated with... Well, like, yeah. Uh, look at... Um, there's a ministry called One for Israel, and they're all Christians, uh, and, and they, they have a lot of courses in the Hebrew language, and you can read... You know, they'll help you read your scriptures in the Hebrew and, and, and all that. Um, I, I definitely encourage that. Because we lose a lot, actually, in the yeah, translations. Yeah. You know, we, we, we really do. That's why I do all of those word studies, because it's really important. It really opens the scripture up more. Uh, than than you originally thought. That was a great question. A any other questions? Shutting down. Three, two.